I'm Jacob Kurtzer. And I'm Kirsten Gelsdorf. And this is Beyond Aid, a podcast that takes you beyond the challenging headlines of humanitarian crises. And dives deeper into the people, ideas, and issues that may help us find ways to connect to humanitarian action. Today on Beyond Aid, I talked to Chris Hoffman of Humanity Link, a former managing director of the Contemplative-Based Resilience Project at the Garrison Institute, about the power of empathy and compassion. Chris, thank you very much for joining us on Beyond Aid. Thanks so much for having me, Jacob. Really excited to talk to you today. Thanks for being here. This particular episode is looking at a challenge being faced by humanitarian aid workers of the stress of the job creating mental health and burnout issues. Do you think that we are in a period of empathy fatigue when you look around the world? And if so, how do you think we should deal with it? We had a certain number of defined roles and characteristics that led us through World War II and into post-World War II. And then the changes that, that happened in the 60s and 70s, where there was a lot of role shifts with the advance of technology, I think everyone was struggling and everyone has been struggling on trying to figure out what their part is in the world. We're constantly having to iterate and change who we are without being able to actually reflect on who we are. On top of that, a much larger exacerbating effect is the inundation that we have of information. Our brains obviously can work through a lot of information all the time, but we have to be trained to be able to accentuate that and utilize that. I don't think academia, I don't think culture is able to yet help us get through how to parse information that we receive. So we're always at a high level of stress just because we're not sure how to react. If we were to hone in on the humanitarian sector, there seems to be a trend in the humanitarian universe of humanitarian aid workers struggling with their place in this system. You think about concepts around localization, questions of doing no harm. You're going into these contexts where you used to be part of the community and now you're part of the globe because you're connected to headquarters. It's a very changed environment. So how do you think these variables then in the humanitarian system affect the mental space for your average humanitarian aid worker, be they an international staff or a local staff or a partner organization? It's such a big question on what humanitarians are facing is, number one, the recurrence of emergencies is ever increasing. What we have right now is multiple, enormous, gargantuan emergencies happening. We talk about Ukraine and East Africa and Yemen and Sahel, Myanmar, all these people really being affected. I think humanitarians, even if they want to serve and be the best servants that they can be to the people that are in need, I think that level of fatigue is very high because they know that they're not making any headway. Even in Afghanistan, oh, we're making headway. And then what happens? The U.S. pulls out. All these things. Fatigue comes from the lack of success. There's so much more happening around us that inhibits our ability to make that theory of change come to reality or make that impact become very fruitful. Metrics for success are not evident or appear to be non-existent because of the cycle of crises. How does this impact the mental health for the individual worker? And then what have you found as a useful way to combat that mental fatigue or that experience of trauma or that experience of malaise? People are jumping from emergency to emergency. You might be in an emergency operating for a certain period of time. You might not see the end of the cycle. A lot of humanitarians suffer from the fact that they open up a program but never got to see the end. What you get is the inability to find 
coping mechanisms that can address not being able to close the loop, so to say, right? So you're always trying to close this loop for your own self, which you end up doing in between then because you're not being that successful. You're not reaching those success criteria. You try to find coping mechanisms to help you deal with that, and but you're just becoming ineffective in your work. Can you help us unpack that a bit further? You've explained how the challenges inherent in humanitarian work create mental stress. How does this these mentally strained humanitarian workers affect humanitarian work at large? What's the negative consequence of having mentally strained and fatigued workers? The reality is, is that I don't think anyone's dove deeply enough into this to quite understand. I've done my bits of research around parsing together other pieces of research to kind of create what I think is a pretty good hypothesis. The reality is, I think that it's dramatically affecting, A, your ability to innovate and to think about and to iterate in a response. What you want to do is the same thing you've done before, you know, because you don't have the headspace to actually get beyond that. Number two, I think that your decision-making for those that are in need, your need takes precedence over the needs of those that you're trying to serve. The third thing that comes from that is the breakdown of your social structure as a humanitarian that actually exacerbates the first two issues. Groupthink sits in there. Oh, we can't do cash programming in South Sudan because there's no cash. And everybody says, yes, you're right. There's no cash. We can't do it. But then nobody thinks about different alternatives, community currencies, whatever else, something innovative that you could really bring in there and change things. Previously, you worked at the Contemplatively Based Resilience Project at the Garrison Institute. Can you tell us a little bit about what that means? What is Contemplative Based (laughs) Resilience? Where do you see the role of that kind of practice in the humanitarian sector? Contemplative Based Resilience is based on mindfulness, the opportunity to look inward, the opportunity to be calm, the opportunity to be centered and actually be able to think. So that's the first piece. The second piece is around physical, the psychosomatic parts of our body and what that means and how that can actually change the way we feel about ourselves, can change the way that we look at things, can change the way that we interact with each other. By bringing those two things together, they had designed this contemplative-based resilience. The CBR project designed for caregivers was to help caregivers be able to care better because the reality is American doctors, 50% suffer from PTSD and different mental health issues of American surgeons and physicians. Being able to give yourself something back is what the CBR was all about. And the uptake of it has been very limited. There have been some small glimmers of hope. The Dutch government two years ago, three years ago, put out the MIND conference through the Minister of Trade, whose former IOM staff put that together, but very few organizations that take a hold of it. That's interesting. Do you have any other examples that you can point to where this contemplative practice has helped caregivers, either humanitarian aid workers or otherwise, but also if there's any evidence on its take-up with the public at large. Are there specific examples where the take-up has happened that we could look at as a useful model to promote the concept even wider within the humanitarian sector? The Antares Foundation has probably had the greatest success. They're still being able to get funded to do projects, for example, in northern Iraq with WHO and others. I would say that's the biggest success that we've seen in in the sector. No organization on the whole has taken mindfulness or those types of practices to the next degree, the next level. Many organizations are building up some capacity around assisting staff with their mental health. In terms of that being at the highest level of HR in the humanitarian world, I would say no, it's not. 
HR in the humanitarian sector still focuses solely on compliance, relevant to the rules and regulations on hiring and contracting, etc. Is this purely an HR thing? Or is there still a sense of, we have to look outward? We focus on the affected population, but not on ourselves. Oh, and it's cultural in every one of the sectors that we've named, plus another 10. People in the service industry, that service that is affecting the lives of others, tend to give themselves more than, let's say, in other industries. So that issue of people in service and being able to assist them, it's a cultural shift. We see divorce rates in the humanitarian sector you know, very high and in service industries very high because people are giving themselves and, and not giving to themselves. You spoke once at a conference about the concept of do no harm and actually argued that because of this dynamic, that potentially humanitarians can be doing more harm if they are depleted and they're carrying out this work. Can you explain that for our audience? I still believe it 100%. I mean, that's my line and I'm sticking to it. It's, it's very true to me and very, very real and, and raw for me. When I stepped out of the humanitarian world, like the field work, after 20 years in the field, it was predominantly because I knew that I was not as effective to the people I was trying to serve. And then I started to look around. It's as clear as day. Just had a conversation just today with a senior manager at another NGO. And he's like, look, these guys are just burnt out. I'm like, wait, the emergency's only been going on for three months. How are they already burnt out? But the thing was, was that they come from another emergency where they were burnt out. And they came before that, they were in another emergency. And they're not making the decisions. The last piece I want to say about this is that the lack of specific specializations or professionalization of the humanitarian sector up to this date is another enormous issue. When you get into other industries, people that have studied PhDs and, and other things in humanitarian work and then go to the field to work, there's a lack of that. What you've got is a lot of people with generalized master's degrees that go into the humanitarian sector and start working and they have all this experience, but very little professionalization, certifications, re-upping their training and all this type of stuff as well. So it's not a sector that wants to grow and iterate and change. It's a sector that wants to provide the baseline service that it can to save lives. And in and of itself, I think that creates a problem. With techniques that are achievable, we can improve our own mental health and we can therefore improve the service we provide to others. Do you believe that this is an optimistic or forward-looking practice? And why is that important in the promotion of it and the take-up of it? 100%. We can change ourselves. You know, we can all make mistakes. We're all human, right? So we, we all make mistakes. We all want to be better humans as best as we can. As humanitarians, being able to take care of ourselves with the idea that that means we're going to be able to serve people better should be central to our ethos. Using different practices like contemplative resilience and, and the practices around that and mindfulness, but also standardized coping mechanisms that we can use in the field. It's, it's a culture shift because there's more of us out there in the world today than there ever have been. There's more people in need than there ever have been. You had a lengthy career in operational response in the humanitarian sector. What are you working on these days? Are you also engaged in ongoing humanitarian work? Have you been able to bring this in informally into any ongoing work that you're currently engaged in? It's really awesome to even ask that. I really appreciate that. My work at Humanity Link takes a number of different paths. One path is being an advisor to people on the way to interact with the people that they're engaging with. I was part of the CHS HHR, which is their big global HR initiative with uh, the Common Humanitarian Standard for a couple of years and was helping them on bringing contemplative resilience. One of the ways I'm working on it is not with agencies. 
I'm actually working on it with the insurance companies that insure agencies to get them to add it to their package so that their premiums can go down if they add in contemplative practice. I've worked with Cigna quite a bit on how to integrate that. On the current humanitarian work, I'm doing a lot of big projects right now with IFRC and NRC. On the the Ukraine response, we've built kind of the world's first WhatsApp-based self-registration tool to distribute cash. We've been able to register over 350,000 individuals over the last 20 days using WhatsApp. And then we set that through a number of data processes to be able to gauge vulnerability and be able to distribute cash to these people right away. Right now, if procurement and everybody signed all the POs, you know, electronically and did everything, we could see their level of vulnerability and we could distribute cash to them within about a half an hour. We do that through MoneyGram or even into their bank accounts if we need to. So that's been super amazing to see how that's changing. And at NRC, now we're developing a new tool that will allow us to create a digital referral mechanism where one phone number in any country can be called. And then whoever you want, you need to speak to in in the humanitarian sector, once you call that phone number, we can send you out to them and then they'll be able to look at your the ticket that you create, just like you if you called Ikea or whatever else and say, hey, look, my water pump's broken in block six at you know camp seven, then they know it and then immediately you can come and fix it in the next day. Flipping the whole paradigm of the humanitarian sector through digital communication is the big work that I'm doing right now and, and really enjoying it. Do you have a practice that you like to use on a daily or when you're stressed about a project that you could share with our audience that may be of use for them? Taking walks. I'm a big walker and a big biker. Having that physical activity is super important on, on the other side of the practice because it's not just about mental, it's about physical. You gotta, you gotta bring the two together. I certainly believe in the value of the bicycle specifically <laughs> I used to commute by bike and the 30 minutes before and after work of focusing on pedaling, you know, even just that ability to just focus on pedaling was an incredible way to separate and extract from the business of the day. I've also noticed that when I pull up next to a, another person on a bicycle at a light in DC, we smile and say hi, which is not my experience <laughs> when I'm in a cab or driving and I yeah, saddle up sure. next to another vehicle. Is there... A specific instance you've seen where the power of contemplative resilience has helped change a community? The reality is no, on mass of a whole group doing some sort of contemplative practice together and change the way they do things. What I will say is that seeing contemplative leaders in the humanitarian sector changes the whole sphere of how the rest of that office operates. What's important is leadership being able to recognize the importance of their ability to lead by example can truly influence the way that everything else in that humanitarian response. If your boss is always stressed out, then everybody else in the office is probably going to be somewhere along that spectrum. But if your boss is a calming factor and a contemplative thinker inside the office and may start the first five minutes of the meeting of everybody just calming and thinking about what we're really going to talk about today and centering everybody into that space, that's super important. That's the next level is to get those leaders to come in and be able to lead by that. Chris Hoffman, thank you very much for joining us on Beyond Aid. Cheers, guys. Thank you so much. It's been lovely. Great to meet you. Next time on the podcast, we will continue to go beyond despair to explore the field of conscious social change with Gretchen Steidel, who will share her strategies for fostering compassion. 
Thank you for listening to Beyond Aid. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues. To make sure you don't miss our next episode, subscribe to Beyond Aid on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.